The reading is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, 9 through 10, and 14. In the beginning, there was the Word. The Word was in God's presence, and the Word was God. The Word was present to God from the beginning. Through the Word, all things came into being, and apart from the Word, nothing came into being that has come into being. In the Word was life, and that life was humanity's light, a light that shines in the darkness, a light that the darkness has never overtaken. The Word was coming into the world, was in the world, and though the world was made through the Word, the world didn't recognize it. And the Word became flesh and stayed for a little while among us. We saw the Word's glory, the favor and position a parent gives an only child, filled with grace, filled with truth. This morning, our Advent focus is on hope and what it means to have hope and to think hopefully about what is to come. In our Advent candle lighting in, the, in, in a few minutes, there's a scripture that's going to be read from Isaiah. And there is a line in Isaiah 42.9 that really spoke to me this week. And the writer of Isaiah says, look here, what's done is done and gone. The now is new, and there is hope in the not yet. How many need to hear this morning that what is done is done, and it's gone? I'm, all the, I'm the only one. I'm it. Come on, work with me. I need to hear that this morning. I need to hear it. And I also need to hear that there is hope in the not yet. That tomorrow could be better. That the next hour could be better. That this Christmas could be a really good one. Because last one was so horrible. Advent, according to Wikipedia, is a time of expectant waiting. In preparation for both the celebration of the Nativity of Christ at Christmas and the return of Christ at the Second Coming. But Advent begins in the dark. We are waiting on the birth of Christ. We are waiting the arrival of our Messiah. We are waiting for December 25th. We are waiting on the return of Christ. We are waiting to open Christmas presents. We are waiting to get together with family. We are waiting. From now until the 25th, we are waiting. And the celebration of Advent helps us through this waiting. We have four Sundays to celebrate the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. It gives us something to look forward to in the middle of our not yet. We get to enjoy beautiful lights and Christmas decorations. Thank you, Pat and Tammy, for putting all that together for us. Thank you, Vicki, for having this artwork for us this morning that is from our Honest Advent series. We get to enjoy work parties and friend parties and school parties. Looking at you, Brian and Laura. Good luck with those. We get to enjoy Hallmark Life and Hallmark and Lifetime movies. If some of you are into that, I'm not, just so we know. But I know some of you really like that stuff, so good for you. We get to enjoy Christmas vacation and elf and Christmas music and baking cookies, the scent of live Christmas trees and peppermint mochas.
We get to enjoy children's excitement, laughter, and their own hopes for Christmas. We get to enjoy fires and fireplaces, thick woolly socks, my favorite, flannel pajamas and warm blankets. So while we are waiting, there are people and celebrations and things to hold on to that make the waiting more bearable. And any time we are in the not yets of life, if we have this underlying structure of people and things to hold on to, the waiting is not so bad. But there are other kinds of not yets that even if we have the people and the structures that underline us, some of our not yets are not that hopeful. There are some that are excitement and anticipation like graduation and weddings and the birth of a baby, a paycheck, an unwrapped gift that has our name on it. And we know this person really buys good gifts. This morning I want to talk about the not yet's that do not fill us with excitement but with dread and anxiety and fear. Dread is awful. This non-existence of dread, this dread, when it's the not yet that fills us with dread. Man, that's not good. That not yet existence of dread. Will it be cancer? Will he come back? Will I lose my job? Is Jesus really going to come through this time? Dread is awful. Dread is absent any hope. The actual definition of dread is to anticipate with great apprehension or fear. It is the absolute opposite of the definition of advent, expectant waiting. And this kind of not yet usually is is accompanied by complete darkness and silence from God. God has gone radio silent. We don't feel God in any of the typical ways that we have felt God before. Not through music, not through the scriptures, not through worship or people, not through prayer, not through anything or anyone. This not yet fills us with dread. In Anne Lamont's book, Dust Night Dawn, she talked about dread. She says, Dread was my governess growing up. She kept me alive. I didn't run into the street. I didn't talk to strangers. I didn't sass. Wiped front to back. Minded my manners and teachers. Stayed on my toes. Did well in school. She would have made an excellent character in the Old Testament. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Although as my parents were atheists, she would have had to tone tone down some of that blood atonement thing. It was into her arms that I retreated from the emotional landmines and overwhelm of the world and the dining table and from the secret, if occasional, experience that deep inside me was an infinite, untrammeled soul. She was my most reliable companion, always there for me, like God in a bad mood. Dread taught me how to succeed and why it mattered, how to survive the caffeinated neglect of my home life, the bullying of the blacktop, the equally fraught states of isolation and intimacy. She kept me in line, helped me to be someone everyone would like. She got me to where I am today. Dread was my governess growing up. You know, even when you don't even realize it, if your default is dread, it just, it just is. It just creeps up even on 
even on the most momentous occasions that are coming up, you're, that, that feeling of what's, what's going to go wrong. It can't all go right. Something was going to go wrong. Because here is the truth of the whole thing. We all know the very worst can happen. We know that that health diagnosis just might turn out to be bad. We know that marriage might not make it. We know that that pink slip might just find us anyway. We've all lived long enough to know that. We've, ex we've all experienced the worst outcomes of the not yets of life. If we think we, we, we sometimes think in the way that I grew up, grew up, that if we do right, good will come to you. And when that, when we get older and we realize that that doesn't always happen that way, it can be devastating. I remember reading <clears throat> several years ago, I was in a church that consistently uh, and dogmatically preached tithing every chance they got. And it was, you know, if, if, you're, if you've had a flat tire that week, oh, did you tithe Sunday? That's probably why you got a flat tire. Y'all been in churches like that? Can I just claim that you won't hear that here? Praise Jesus. But I thought that. And then I read of a family I, somewhere up in this area. I was in Mississippi at the time, so it was up the north for me, but it was probably Illinois. I get it. Y'all are the Midwest, not the north, whatever. It makes no sense. But anyway, uh, there was this couple that were, was going through financial problems, and they were tithing faithfully every week for years, weeks, da, 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 and, and, they, and their financial life just fell apart. They lost jobs. They went into debt. They had to file bankruptcy, but they kept tithing. Whatever little bit that came in, they kept tithing, and eventually they land up in bankruptcy court, and guess what? The bankruptcy court's like, uh, excuse me, that needs to come to bankruptcy court. You need to quit giving that to the church. That's what their lawyer advised. And I remember thinking at the time, but they did everything right. How could they have lost their jobs? The truth of the matter is we can do all the things right and still lose a job, right? We can do all the things right and still lose our marriage. But when dread has been our governess, Finding anticip anticip an oh, anticipatory hope, finding expectant hope, in, in spite of the very real possibility that we'll all fall apart, well, that's a struggle. That's hard. And yet, that is the kind of hope that you and I need. The one that Christ calls us to in this season of Advent, and we're reminded of that. That Advent is not one of dread, but something that wonderful and beautiful is coming our way. I hope that is fulfilled by the birth of Jesus. Jesus, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus who was and is humanity's life, not just for those of us insiders, but for all of humanity. Look here. What's done is done and gone. The now is new, and there is hope in the not yet. So how do we hope with anticipation and not dread? What do we do with our time of darkness or silence from God in our time of not yet? Now let's talk about Rahab for a minute. I've talked about Rahab before with you guys. Uh, 
you remember that we talked about that Rahab is only one of four women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. It was Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And Rahab is also only one of two women mentioned in our Hebrews Hall of Faith that we know, her and Sarah. Now, Rahab, she wasn't necessarily a woman with a good reputation. In the book of, in the chapter, in Joshua chapter 2, we read that Joshua sends out some spies to the city of Jericho to see how they can just effectively take that thing down and conquer the city. And the city of Jericho had heard about these Israelites, and these Israelites had, they knew that, they, they had heard these stories of where God had parted a Red Sea, and these people walked on dry land to the other side to escape their captors, and so the people in Jericho were pretty afraid, and Rahab was one of them. And she was a woman that ran a, uh, a, a brothel. And so these two men from Joshua, the two Israelites that Joshua sent in, they, they go to spend the night at Rahab's place. Now, we could get into a whole sermon about why that was, but we won't. They do, and she realizes who they are, and she wants to save them. She wants to take care of them. And so um, she has them come in, and she's like, I'm going to hide you. And some people, her people come up and are like, hey, we, know you, we think you've got somebody from the Israelite team in your house, and we need to take them. And she lies. She lies and says, they're not here. I've never seen them. I, as a matter of fact, well, I think I might have seen them. I, I saw some guys go running out the front gate. That might have been them. Why don't you go see if that was them? I mean, just lies. We could talk about that all day, too. So Rahab tells these men, I know the Eternal has given your people this land. Your coming has paralyzed us all with fear. We have heard how the Eternal held back the Red Sea so you could escape from Egypt on dry land. As soon as this news reached us, our hearts melted like wax, and none of us had an ounce of courage left. The Eternal One, your God, is truly God of the heavens above and the earth below. And because I know all these things, this is my request. Since I have treated you kindly and have protected you, please promise me by the Eternal that you will do the same for my family. Give me some sign of good faith. In the message, Peterson says something tangible. That when you destroy the city, you will spare my mother and father, my brothers and sisters, and their families from death. And they say to her, you had the power to turn us in, but you saved us. Now we will do the same for you. If you will promise not to tell anyone what we were doing here, then you will have our word. We will treat you with kindness and faithfulness when the Eternal One gives us the land. So she helps them get out of the city, and she makes them promise her this oath. And the men tell her that you need to tie a scarlet rope outside of your window. And her, the window they were talking about was the one that would have been facing outside the city, not inside the city. So that when we come to, you know, kill all the women and children and men, that's a whole other sermon, okay? We, we can't get there today, but I promise that we probably need to. But I need to know that, that this is the house we're not going to hurt you. So put that red cord outside your window and we'll know not to hurt you. Now, I want you to realize something with me. Rahab has three strikes against her. She's a Canaanite. She's a woman. 
and she's a prostitute. All three, which were typically vilified during this time, and let's be honest, still vilified in 2021. That red cord, it's a Hebrew word, tikva, and it means hope. It specifically means in the story of Rahab, a cord as an attachment. It's the only time in the Bible this word is actually used. Tikva is a hope cord, and it's attached to the window, and it saves her life and her family's. A red cord. Rahab had no real guarantee that the Israelites would spare her and her family. She had no guarantee that her own people would not come back and kill her and her whole family. Both were very real possibilities. It could have gone bad either way. And something that occurred to me as I was studying this this week is it was weeks, probably months, before the Israelites came back. This didn't happen in a week or two. There was some time that was spent before the Israelites came back to, to ransack the city. What if they were not honorable men? What if they did not keep their word to her? What if the Canaanites found out what she did on that night and they come back to hurt her and her family? No guarantees. All she had was tikva. All she had was hope. And not only hope is a feeling, but hope is something tangible, something she could see, something she could touch. She had a red cord hanging out of her window. We don't know what Rahab did while waiting on this rescue. But we can surmise this. She didn't just sit down in front of her window and stare at the tikva hanging out of her window for weeks and weeks. She couldn't have. She had work to do. She had people to feed and care for. If she just stopped sitting and just sat at her window wait, watching for her rescuers, she would also have drawn unwanted attention from her own people. She had to carry on. She had to run her business and live her life. I'm sure that in that darkness and that silence, she had dread. In that not yet for Rahab, I'm sure there was fear. But she couldn't stop. She kept going. I would like to suggest to us this morning that one way to anticipate the not yet is by doing what needs to be done right in front of us at the time. Now, I want to say this from the bottom of my heart because I made it in my, all the way to my bones. There are times when we need to sit still and just know that God is God. We, we need that moment. We really, really do. There's times to just slow down and stop and just know God is God. But when that not yet takes a little bit longer than what you think it would, <laughs> you have to move at some point. You have to. There are things to do. There are bills to be paid. <laughs> there's laundry to be done. There's meals to be cooked. There's homework to be helped with. There's weeds in the garden. There's grass to mow. There's a job to go to. Somebody's got to change the oil in our car. There are things that are right in front of us that have to be done when we're in the middle of our not yets. So we do the next thing while we wait in the darkness. But there's also another thing that I would like to suggest that we do when we're in the not yets. There are people that will be presented to us during this season of not yet that need to know that God is with them in their darkness too. 
Rahab was living in a city where people knew that they were going to be attacked and probably, probably killed at any time. They didn't know when. This was dread. This was apprehension. This was fear. Not only did Rahab have things that had to be done, there were people around her that needed to know God was with them too. And whoever those people are for you and I, we be with them, serve them, love them. We are not the only ones that need to be reminded that God is with us and our not yets. Those people need to know there's hope in their not yets too. As it gets colder, I, I can't help but worry just like you do about our unsheltered friends and for those of you that gave you know, sleeping bags and coveralls and socks and blankets and hot hands, thank you so much. Um, Terry and I were up here on Wednesday um, doing some things and some of our friends were in the vestibule and, and they needed some of these things. And because they were just right there, <laughs> we were able to just go right there and get what they need and and give it to them. We do have people that, are, that use the outside of our vestibule in there for a place that's somewhat warm and a little bit safe at night, especially in the winters. And I'm telling you that to tell you this. Those are people just like us who have not yet in their lives. Not yet. Not yet. So how can we be a friend to them? Because we want to know that God is with us and our not yet. But our unsheltered friends need to know that too. You know what? If you're, if you're out here one night, out this way, and you think about it, won't you drop some pizza off for them? Stop by and ask them, hey, can I grab you some coffee? Get to know them, their names. They're in our front door my friends, they're at our front door. If we're not comfortable on going to going on the streets, some of you are, and I thank you for that, all you've got to do is come to the front door of our sanctuary. For the foster children that we have gathered gifts for, Megan, how many kids did we wind up having? 88. But we had this conversation of Megan and I did of, and with Vicky too, like, I, we've never done that many before. We probably, and I, I don't know who it was. Somebody said, we got this. God got it, and it happened. What about those that have lost loved ones this past year or so? They probably could use some hope in their darkness and their silence. Whose marriage ended or is in the process of ending? Who lost their job? Who's having trouble making ends meet? Who is going through difficult family situations? Perhaps an estranged child who doesn't speak to them anymore or a parent who's struggling with addiction. Who doesn't see the love and mercy and grace and work of Christ anymore in this world? Who has experienced intolerance and injustice? All these living in the not yets of life in darkness and silence, and all need to be reminded that God is still with them too. This red cord is tangible, and it speaks. It reminds us there is hope in the not yet. 
when I was planning on coming to Imago, I had spent to like do my trial sermon, whatever we call it. I had uh, prayed and prayed, God, what would you want me to say? And um, I came up with, you know, a sermon that I thought was it, and I poured my heart and soul into it, and it was just the thing, and it was right, and it was going to happen. And the Sunday before, we flew out on a Friday, but the Sunday before, uh, I was at my home church in Huntsville, and um, at the end of the sermon, a, a friend of mine came up, his name was Ryan, and he said, uh, hey, I want to show you something. I said, okay. So the Christmas before, this would have been 2019, I preached at Christmas, and I preached on Rahab and the red cord, and I gave everyone in the congregation a red cord for Christmas, to, something to hold on, something tangible, something to be reminded of Tikvah. And um, he ran to his car, and he came back, and on his key rings were, was a red cord, and man, it was battered. It was beat up. It was about gone. And I was like, he was like, you know the Sunday you preached on the red cord, the tikva? He said, I tied that red cord onto my keychain. That was Christmas 2019. What was going to happen in a couple of months? COVID. He said, this year's been hard. He was a university professor there in Alabama, University of Alabama in Huntsville. And he said, when I go to work in the morning and when I drive home in the evenings, I look at that red cord and it reminds me there's hope even in all of this. And it reminds me to hold on. It's an attachment. Hold on to it. Hold on to hope. He had tears in his eyes and he said, I want you to know there's been, a, there's been some things getting me through it, this whole COVID thing, but this has been a part of it too. And I knew in that moment what I was supposed to preach when I came up here that weekend. In an instant, that was it. Because we need something tangible when there's nothing tangible. It's a silly thing. It's a silly thing if you think about it. It's just a red cord. But I'm telling you, when we are in the not yet, and that dread is deep in our soul and that fear and anxiety, just knowing, God, I need some hope. I need some hope that this is going to be okay. Even if it's not okay, I need to know it's going to be okay. What do we do when we are in these not yet moments? What if we tried two things? Just do the next right thing right in front of us and serve someone whose darkness is even darker than ours. In your little Advent kit that you're going to get today, every one of you will have a little bitty tikva, a little red cord in your Advent bag to hold on to if this is a dark season for you. Something tangible, something to remind you that our hope is in Christ. And no matter what, it'll be okay.